Production support comes from Smithville Fiber, the GigaCity company, a philanthropic community partner since 1922 and proud supporter of numerous community organizations. More information at smithville.com. And School of Public Health Bloomington, public health reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life publichealth.indiana.edu. Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times, along with co-host Sarah Whitmeyer from WFIU and WTIU. And this week on Noon Edition, we're going to have uh, three guests who will hopefully be able to explain to us um, the history of internet regulation and what's happening now in Washington, D.C. when it comes to, to how the internet is going to be regulated. We have three uh, great guests lined up for today. Julian Mayland is assistant professor at Indiana University's Media School. Matt Pierce is a senior lecturer in the Indiana University Media School. And Anthony L. Fargo is a director of the Center for International Media Law and Policy Studies. This show is a previously recorded episode, so you can't give us a call right now. But Noon Edition will be back right after the holidays. Well, welcome to all three of you. Matt, good to have you on the phone. Thanks for Thank being you. thanks for being here. Julian and Anthony are here in the studio. Matt has a, a meeting in Indianapolis. Of course, Matt's a state legislator as well as uh, being a senior lecturer at IU in the media school. So this is a very difficult topic for a lot of people to get their arms wrapped around. And I'm going to turn to Julian first uh, to ask if you can sort of set the stage for, you know, what what is the issue about about this internet regulation. We hear about net neutrality, and now we have a new FCC chair, a new Congress that's trying to roll that back. Kind of set the stage for our conversation today. Sure. Uh, well, thanks for having us um, here today. Well, think about it this way. Um, let's pretend that you're renting a house, um, and depending on your level of wealth, you can rent a small house or a big house. And if you have a small house, you can have a dinner party with maybe five, 10 friends max. If you have a big house, you can um, have a lot more friends. And uh, traditionally, that's how the internet has operated, that you would rent um, a facility, which is a cable provided by a cable company like Comcast, um, and you would pay either a little to get small speeds or a lot to get a lot of speed if you're a gamer, and you could use that cable however you wanted by selecting the content that you wanted. But now, going back to our um, house renting example, uh, let's imagine you've rented your house, but now when you want to have a dinner party, your landlady actually um, has a bouncer outside your house <laughs> and wants to charge your friends to come in, right? Mm -hmm. uh, which sounds somewhat unfair because you've already rented the house to do whatever you please with it. Well, the cable companies are trying to do exactly the same thing with the internet. Uh, what they want to do is you've paid as the user to access the internet, but now they want to charge uh, the content provider for accessing your house, right? Uh, and so we've seen this, for example, where uh, Comcast uh, slowed down Netflix's speeds uh, until Netflix agreed to pay Comcast. Uh, and Comcast has justified it under the uh, guise of um, the fact that maintaining the infrastructure is costly. But what they're forgetting to tell you is that you've already paid for this as the user. Uh, so this is what's going on right now. Um, in 2015, the FCC stepped in to prevent this practice, um, and they called it the Open Internet Order in 2015. And it told uh, the cable companies, you cannot block content from select uh, content provider, and you cannot slow down their speed um, in order to extract revenue from them. And this is what is contested by the cable companies right now, and this is a rule that the uh, current FCC chairman, Pi, uh, wants to eliminate. Okay, so if I, so, I'm having this dinner party, and I want to invite ESPN and Netflix and, um, gosh, I don't know, the 
WFIU, right. for instance, to come to my dinner party. So you're saying that that the internet provider could basically have some impact on which one of these I can get or how fast I can get them. Absolutely. Okay. And then I have many motivation for them, uh, for that. One of them would be to extract revenue, right? They might say, I'm not going to let WFIU, I'm not going to let you users stream WFIU unless WFIU pays me money because um, it's well known. You guys have a lot of money um, <laughs> and they were extracted from you or because your program might compete with their program. Right, you might promote views that they don't like, uh, that they don't want to hear, and therefore they might block you. So this would extend then to other websites we go to just to seek out information. Absolutely, it extends to the entire internet. If you allow, if you do not have an open internet order in place, if you do not have regulations preventing the cable companies from discriminating against certain content or service providers, uh, these cable companies could. Um, block any type of content or services that you want to access on the internet. So if I just had a blog or something and I wanted more people to access it, I would have to pay somebody if I wanted that to show up in a search. It's entirely possible. Um, Comcast might decide, hey, you know what, your blog is is nice, but we're not going to let our customers uh, look at it unless you pass a small monthly fee. So I want to ask Matt and, and Anthony both to sort of react to Julian's uh, example here. Uh, is this a, a real? Is this a good way to look at it? Is it a realistic approach? Should, should we be worried about this? Anthony, why don't you start, and then Matt, you can join in. Well, I think one, uh, it is a realistic approach. I think uh, the way that the uh, internet service providers, like uh, cable companies and others, uh, justify this is they say, "Well, we, what we want to block are people like BitTorrent or other people who are." Who are allowing uh, illegally downloaded material to be passed and who also use up a lot of bandwidth when they do it, which, are, which also slows down the network. The problem is I don't think that's really what's going on completely. Uh, it may be partially what they're thinking about, but I think a lot of their motivation is exactly what Julian was just talking about, is they'd like to be able to charge um, Netflix, the New York Times, uh, the Herald Times, uh, whoever it might be, to to get a, a a faster lane through the internet than other people who don't pay, and that has uh, some interesting implications for what it is that we we will have access to and what we don't. Mm-hmm. Matt, yeah, I think that's exactly right. What's happening is the telecom world is ever-changing, and so particularly for cable companies, who are also internet service providers like Comcast, they see um, new younger people not subscribing to cable. They see older customers beginning to drop and do something called over-the-top, where you just get Netflix through the internet. So they value the connection that Comcast gives in the internet, but not so much the 200 channels they make you pay for, even if you only watch 14 of the channels. And so they're losing revenue from that side, and then they're getting squeezed to pay more to broadcast stations for something called retransmission consent and to pay sports channels higher fees for the sports rights. And so they're looking around and saying our costs are going up, our revenue coming is going now, we need a new revenue stream. And they look around and say, gee, if we would get a piece of the action of Netflix and all these online over-the-top services that kind of go around our box, then we can maybe make up for that. And so that's where this has um, kind of begun. And that's why the average customer, I think, would want to be concerned about the policy. Because if you want to have the ability to get a good, reasonable connection to Netflix, because that's your favorite movie service, you don't want to have to worry about that getting cut off because Comcast wants you to subscribe to their stream pick service instead. Gotcha. Okay. So I know that there are – so, you know, under the Obama Obama administration, that neutrality was – you know, it was put in place. So – who are the winners in this? So the, these big companies are they the uh, are they the people that are sort of advocating for this that that Mr. Pai is is supporting? I mean, why why would the new administration and a new FCC chairman want to throw out what the Obama administration put in, other than just the political uh, differences? Right. Well, I do think there are a couple of different things going on. One is you do have just a general different philosophy toward government regulation. So Republicans, certainly from the time of Reagan, have basically said they think any kind of government regulation is really a drag on the economy is to be avoided at all costs. You've got an ideological 
disposition that opposes any kind of regulation. And the theory is that the marketplace will sort that all out. So the idea is that if Comcast starts blocking or slowing down your favorite service, you'll just dump them and go to another company, and that'll all take care of it. But the problem is, if everybody's doing it, then, you know, how do you get around that? And so that's one issue. And then secondly, uh, you know, Verizon, Comcast, um, AT&T, all these companies are big players in the political process. They contribute a lot of money to political action committees, and they have a lot of lobbyists. And so they're very involved in the political process, so they have lots of influence. So, uh, again, I'm trying to get my, you know, trying to make sure I, I understand the players and the motivation behind everything. Now, haven't I read that some of the some of these bigger players like Facebook, they don't really care about this change, right? Why, why would that be? Actually, um, companies that provide content and services over the Internet uh, are massively in favor of net neutrality. Uh, Google, for example, has been a pretty clear advocate of it. And the reason is because... Um, their access to us as user is mediated by these large cable companies. And so if companies like Comcast or Verizon or AT&T are allowed to discriminate against certain content or service provider, then these companies, Facebook and Google, um, to talk about the large one, but also uh, your blog, Sarah, um, is at risk of not being um, accessed um, Mm -hmm. by users. And I think to get back to the point that Matt was making about ideology, I think it seems to me that um, Mr. Pai has a very, very strong ideological bent um, that regulation is bad and that regulation limits freedom. The problem is that we are in a market that is a monopolistic market uh, where in any given place in America, if you're lucky enough to have a broadband provider, usually you only have one or maybe two. So it's an oligopoly. And so that doesn't work really well. It, It puts these corporations uh, in a position to abuse their monopoly. And so historically, uh, what we've done in the United States uh, in in a free market economy is to regulate those corporations when they become too big, when they become monopoly, when they abuse their power. And so all the non-neutrality order does is that it actually does enforce freedom. It tells corporations like Comcast, you cannot discriminate against service providers. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, it would be the same as if, um, you know, at the farmer's market, if the city of Bloomington decided that only people selling tomatoes and carrots could be in the farmer's market, but not people selling kale or cheese. Right. That would be a problem. And so what this regulation does, the open Internet order, it just tells the market operator, the infrastructure operator, the, the owner of the cable that goes into your house, you cannot prevent other people from providing their content and services. So that order actually increases freedom to innovate, to provide content, to speak over the internet for anyone, whether that be Facebook, whether it be Google, or whether there would be you and I through our uh, own little blogs. So I know folks who want to loosen these regulations have said that they stifle development or competition. Uh, historically speaking, have we seen that regulations, I mean, what effect do the, have these regulations had on development of the internet? Is that something you can answer, Anthony, or Julian, can you? Well, I think these corporations are lying, plain and simple. Um, in <laughs> fact, I, I'm, I'm looking right now at the webpage for the NCTA, which is the cable lobby uh, industry, and they tell you that Congress should act to ensure net neutrality. And then they tell you that uh, the regulation increases consumer harm. But that's just plain and simple a lie. All the regulation does is it enforces consumers' freedom to choose whatever content they want, and it restricts Comcast and Verizon and AT&T's ability to restrict your freedom and to tell you what you should watch. Where are they getting this harm from? Yeah, go ahead, Matt. Yeah, if I could jump in. So one of the arguments that Ajit Pai and the um, anti-net neutrality people make is that when the government steps in and regulates, they basically uh, create disincentives for investment into the infrastructure. Um, And therefore, uh, what Ajit Pai has said in his FCC proposal to get rid of the rule is that we have evidence that the amount of investment in pushing Internet out in the rural areas or other places has declined. But the studies that he points to are kind of from more ideological conservative think tanks. I don't think they're really peer-reviewed. 
And uh, at the same time that this argument is being made, like, hey, we're going to have to slow down our investment, the actual Internet service providers in their Wall Street calls tell people that this rule is not impacting our ability to make a profit or investment plans. We're just going full speed ahead with our investments. And so, you know, you get two different messages. The regulators are told this is really going to disincentivize us from investing, and yet they're telling the Wall Street investors we're going to go full bore. So you have to decide, you know, what's the truth. We're talking about uh, net neutrality and Internet regulation today on Noon Edition. We have three guests, Julian Mayland, who's an assistant professor at IU in the Media School, Matt Pierce, senior lecturer at IU in the Media School, and Anthony L. Fargo, director of the Center for International Media Law and Policy Studies at IU. This episode was previously recorded back in June. You can't join the program with us today, but we'll be back in January. You know, I think sometimes the language that people use is, is very confusing. I mean, you were just talking about that, Julian, and, you know, Matt, you see it in legislation, and people will name a law one thing when it maybe does just the opposite. I mean, in the, in the case of this new, this new law, the FCC is talking about restoring Internet freedom. That's, that's kind of the, the term they use, and it sounds like you guys are all saying in a way that it's kind of the opposite of that. Matt, do you want to address that? Yeah, this, this, uh, there's been a real battle to frame this issue, and it's been going on since 2002 when the Bush FCC decided to treat these Internet service providers as just information services, meaning they could discriminate between people using their facilities. And so uh, you have one set of people saying the Internet will be less free if the government regulates it, that basically the government will come in and take away your freedom by the fact that they have the power to regulate the Internet. And so they use that to kind of scare people. Because most people say, like, yeah, I don't want the government, you know, trying to censor what I look at or somehow control what I do on the Internet, even though that's not what the rule does. But that's the argument from Agitpi and people on, on that side. The pro-net neutrality forces, they say that the people who are going to take your freedom away in the Internet are these very corporations who provide it, the Internet service providers, because they can manipulate the flow of the data in a way that favors services they have a financial interest in, or they could go to an extreme and even block web pages or other information that they just don't want you to see. Mm-hmm. And there's, you have to, without a net neutrality rule or an open Internet order that's in place now, you don't have any ability to keep that internet really open. And so that's kind of what the battle is. One side says it's going to kill the internet with government regulation, and the other side says the internet's going to get killed with corporate misconduct. Anthony? Yeah, I was going to say there are some analogies here that um, this isn't the first time we've seen this in this in the realm of communications or telecommunications. In the Telecommunications Act of 1996, for example, the uh, uh, Congress basically uh, required the FCC to get rid of or largely get rid of most of its ownership regulations on commercial radio and television on the theory that everybody will be free and they'll be able to compete and they'll be able to to do economies of scale and work better. And what we saw almost immediately when the ink was dry on that bill was we had several companies swoop in and buy as many radio stations as they could and began eliminating local staff, local DJs. Uh, so who got the 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 freedom out of that? Was it the listener and the viewer, or was it the companies that were able to uh, to be free to buy a whole lot of companies and lay off a lot of people? I want to follow up on that and just ask about you know, I, uh, and, and it seems like I remember something about this, but you can help me with the history about people who like a Comcast or somebody who's providing basically the the vehicle where. Uh, I can get my content, and then a company like Comcast buying NBC or whatever it's bought to be able to provide content. So now they control the way I get my content and the content. Has that been a significant issue, uh, you know, in the with the government or with regulators? Not really, uh, so far. And and again, I think as part of the general tendency of government since the Reagan years, really to try to deregulate as much as they could. Um, there has been kind of a, um, a reluctance to tell people how to run their, their companies. So we haven't seen too many uh, antitrust examinations that have stopped uh, these type of mergers. Uh, the, the, tele- the communications companies call it synergy. You know, it's great if we can have the content 
we provide the content, we'll transmit the content, we'll you know we'll control it in every way, and and that will basically allow us to optimize you know our both our profits and how much information we give. It oftentimes optimizes profit, not always necessarily. Does it work out to be a great uh, benefit to co- the content we actually receive? Mm-hmm. Matt, you mentioned open internet and net neutrality almost in the same sentence. Um, is there a difference between the two? Oh, I, was just... I think it's just a different way of uh, describing it. So most people say a net neutrality rule is what we need, and that would just be simply say that internet service providers cannot unreasonably discriminate among different types of data flowing across their network. So they can't block a Netflix in favor of their own service. So that's the, basically the net neutrality rule. The FCC, when they adopted what I call the net neutrality rule, they decided to call it the open internet rule. And maybe it's a little bit of you know spin doctoring or whatever, but I think they wanted to make the point that the rule's intent is to make sure that the internet does stay open, that the information can flow freely, and that you won't have bottlenecks where you can have certain players kind of um, you know, discouraging people from using a service because maybe they slow it down too much or from outright blocking something. And so really net neutrality and open internet order, um, you know, are all the same thing. And I noticed that Ajit Pai's called his proposal the internet freedom rule or something. And so he's, you know, everybody wants to be on the side of freedom. <laughs> well, back, you know, along those lines, I mean, on, on content, again, I think about cable companies. That, now, haven't they been able to, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, basically put together packages that favor the company, the, the different uh, financial interests that they have. Sure. Right. And what's really interesting with the Internet is that <clears throat> it is a really strong departure from traditional forms of media. Uh, traditionally, when you um, buy a cable package, you're basically being told what to watch, right? You get a package and the company decides for you what you're going to watch. Uh, when you pick up the New York Times, you're also being told what to read in a sense because you're getting the content that the New York Times editors have decided that you should see. The internet was a dramatic shift from this camp of media consumption where all of a sudden the user decides what to watch, right? And so you can see that for companies like Comcast that are um, you know, in the same corporate group as NBC, uh, it would be slightly problematic because that's not the way that they tra- traditionally do business, right? Um, and it was also interesting that you mentioned vertical integration because Comcast and Hulu um, are the same corporation, essentially. And Hulu, if you're not familiar with it, is an on-demand uh, streaming video services that conflicts, that competes with Netflix. And so you could see where Comcast, that's in the same corporate group as Hulu, uh, would have an interest in making sure that Hulu gets access to your house really fast, but that Netflix doesn't. Hence the need for them to discriminate. Um, mm-hmm. and, and to go back to kind of this model where you're a mere eyeball being told by the TV company what to watch. Mm-hmm. It's, so we've heard about why big companies would want this and some lobbyists behind it, but are there, I mean, are there real people like like me, who are saying we need we need to do this? Absolutely, and um, but we need to do more. Um, the reason that the FCC passed the uh, Open Internet Order at the first place is because um, they got a lot a lot of comment from the people. Uh, millions and millions of people complained to the FCC uh, and said that we wanted uh, a free and open internet, and that really emboldened uh, the FCC to go and pass that rule because they knew that they had the support of the people. Uh, currently, the FCC is accepting comments uh, on the proposed rule by Pi to repeal that regulation, and I think it's very important that each and every one of us actually goes and tell the FCC that we do want net neutrality and that we are on the side of net neutrality. And you can go on the FCC website, but it's very confusing because it's a government website. Uh, but if you go to freepress.net, uh, which is the website of Free Press, which is an independent um, advocacy group, uh, you can fill in a uh, form and tell the FCC that you want non-neutrality. Thank you for listening to WFIU's Noon Edition. We'll be right back after this short break. From the Milton Metz studio at IU's Radio TV building, this is Noon Edition on WFIU. 
Production support comes from Smithville Fiber, online at smithville.com, and IU School of Public Health Bloomington, online at publichealth.indiana.edu. WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state throughout the day at WFIUNews.org and on Twitter at WFIUNews. You can watch unfiltered video of breaking stories on Facebook Live. And you can get a digest of all the day's top stories delivered to your inbox each afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of the headlines, plus the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't find anywhere else. Subscribe right now at WFIUNews.org. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Salzberg from the Herald Times, along with Sarah Whitmire, News Bureau Chief for WFIU and WTIU, and we're talking about Internet policy and uh, some potential changes in Internet policy in the United States. Julianne Mayland, an assistant professor at Indiana University's Media School, is with us, as is Matt Pierce, a senior lecturer at Indiana University's Media School, and you also know Matt as a state representative, and Anthony Fargo, director of the Center for International Media Law and Policy Studies at Indiana University, is also with us in the studio. We aren't taking calls today because this is a previously recorded episode, but we will be back with another noon edition after the holidays. So, I mean, this is, as I've said before, maybe it's just my simple mind, but this is a very broad and broad and deep topic. And, you know, the Internet wasn't even envisioned, what, two decades ago or wasn't in wide usage two decades ago. And I'm just I want to ask all three of you to um, give me your opinion on whether. You know, from the beginnings of what the Internet, what we thought the Internet would be or what the the founders or the originators of the Internet thought it would be, how has it changed? How has it morphed? How has it transformed in, in some of the impacts on society? Anthony? Wow, okay. That's a big one. Yeah, yeah I was going to say. Um, okay, several things. I think uh, there, were, there were multiple visions, of course, of, of how the Internet was going to develop. But I think uh, the most uh, real, you know, most idealistic Ideas was that it would be a great avenue, for one thing, for education, educating the public not only about uh, school, uh, what we think of as school subjects perhaps, but also about how government works, about how society works. And uh, it's kind of interesting. Uh, there was a 1997 Supreme Court decision, uh, Reno versus ACLU, in which the court struck down a, uh, an attempt by Congress to regulate indecency on the Internet. Um, for various reasons, it was a very problematic law, and, and the court saw that. But they described it really interestingly. I, I, you get the impression reading the opinion they had never seen the internet before. But the way that they described it, they uh, largely talk about the wonderful capacity it gives for people to be able to make their their own viewpoints known. To, as you know, Sarah mentioned earlier, to put out their own blog, for example. Although that word wasn't in vogue then. But to basically uh, reach a large audience for a relatively small uh, investment, uh, which is even smaller now than it was then, uh, and without having to go through media gatekeepers. Uh, and you basically can become your own media. You can become, I think the phrase the court used was, your own town crier, so to speak. And for better or worse, we have seen, you know, to a large extent that that is true, although getting people to pay attention to what you're saying is is still a challenge because there's so much out there. So I think in that respect, the Internet has, to a large extent, met the promise, but we still have problems, of course, with what we call the digital divide, where not everybody can afford uh, to get access, not everybody uh, can easily get access or find a place to get access. Uh, But there's still, I think, a lot of truth behind what the court said in that case, that there is... uh, um, there is a forum there that is uh, available to a, a wide range of people that did not have access to make their, their viewpoints known before. Mm-hmm. How could overturning these 2015 regulations um, affect the future development of the Internet? Well, uh, go ahead, Joe. Well, I think that if you 
allow, if you repeal the regulation, um, it will allow these companies like Comcast and Verizon and AT&T who provide you access, it will allow them to discriminate against content that they don't like or, or against speakers who refuse to pay them. And that's not a hypothetical case. Uh, there's been many, many examples of uh, those companies actually doing that before the FCC stepped in, right? For example, in 2007, AT&T blocked Skype. So you could not use the Skype app on your AT&T phone because AT&T wanted you to use your phone minutes, okay? Oh. Um, in uh, 2012, AT&T announced that it would disable the FaceTime video calling app, again, so that you would be forced to use AT&T's competing service. Uh, we've seen that Comcast, uh, I'm sorry, Netflix speeds were being slowed down dramatically on Comcast until Comcast, uh, I'm sorry, Netflix agreed to pay Comcast. And the second that Netflix paid Comcast, the speeds went up again, miraculously. Um, so this is not a hypothetical thing. And in fact, uh, the lawyer for Verizon stated that but for these rules, and he was talking about the internet, the open internet order, but for these rules, we would be exploring those types of arrangements where they block uh, contents of competitor or where they force people to pay them. So um, we're looking at, at something real. We're looking at the ability for the industry to discriminate. So moving forward there, there might be no reason if I want to, I don't know, develop some app for, for grocery pickup or something like that. I might not do it because it might get blocked. They it, might absolutely. give preference to Kroger's app or something. Absolutely. And so uh, what the Open Internet Order does is that by forcing uh, these companies to not discriminate, uh, it enables you and anyone else to innovate and create new content and services and put them out to the world. And so that Open Internet Order actually increases freedom. That's, I think, the very important take, is that we have a regulation here, which although it is government intrusion, because it's, it's a regulation, it's government intrusion that actually uh, rent for, uh, increases freedom. All right, we have a phone call. I want to go to Mike from Bloomington on the phone. Mike, go ahead. Um, hi, this is Mike. Um, I have I just I retired two years ago as a uh, Windows system administrator, and I've been a Unix administrator since 1985. Uh, one comment is that um, throttling bandwidth is built into many of the protocols, so that one of my jobs as administrator. Is to, tweak, is to tweak those. And I know that, for example, I use at one point a limited student use of their pipe in Indianapolis to 40% of the pipe. So as part of it, it is quite frequently when you have a, a network that is jammed that you've got to start deciding how to um, allocate bandwidth to the various users. Now, this doesn't mean you, you ask them to pay you, but uh, there is possibility for some throttling going on. My question, um, I think this is aimed mainly at Matt Pierce, is that my impression, and I retired from the uh, LSA at the State House, um, is that uh, the opportunity to open up new internet providers at the local level has been restricted by the legislature. And I'd like comments on that. Thank you. Okay. Yeah, that's uh, the question is what has the state done to try to open up? this infrastructure or allow new players in and this is a problem that all the states face and uh, you know in a number of states where municipalities have tried to start their own um, internet service providers basically um, a lot of states under state law have have prohibited that and there was a movement to do that maybe about a decade ago in here in Indiana and and surprisingly the legislature didn't do it um, I think because you had some towns like Scottsburg and some other smaller places that had already um, gotten some federal grants and put some stuff in place and they said please don't mess with us so that's um, you know that's one issue that's going on there but I think that you know, the general philosophy here at the State House is if you just deregulate everything, the marketplace will be, you know, so good that you'll naturally have these competitors kind of rise up. And even if you look at energy markets and things, it's a similar kind of, of argument. And in fact, sometimes you've got to figure out how do you let a small player 
into the game to be able to build up to the point where they can compete with the big players. Because we're down to the point now where you've got AT&T and Comcast are these huge Internet service providers. They're kind of dominating things. And then you have some local or regional players like a Smithville Telephone Company, and they don't have the access to the level of capital that an AT&T or a Comcast would have. And the government has to be willing to be a referee in the marketplace to make sure the competition's fair. And so what often will happen is if you have a smaller player like Smithville come in and start challenging a bigger player like AT&T and Comcast, it's easy for them to do predatory pricing and suddenly offer all kinds of specials and lower prices. If you call up and say, hey, I'm going to switch to Smithville because maybe I think it's a better deal or better service, they can say, hey, we'll undercut them. And even if they have to lose some money on that at the front end, um, you know, that that basically keeps the other competition down. And so you got a lot of antitrust issues that are there, and so that's a bit more of a federal issue than a, than a state issue. But I think the government needs to be willing to be a referee to umpire the competition to make sure it's fair. Mike, any follow-up? Um, my other comment is that the, the, the thing, the FCC review, if there's anybody gaining additional freedom, it's the service provider to generate a new... Um, income stream at the cost of viewers that does nothing for the viewers and limits their freedom. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you for the call. The show you're listening to is an episode from earlier this year on net neutrality. Noon Edition will return after the holidays. We had a call from Sarah from Bloomington. Who owns the Internet? <laughs> That's a yeah, I know it's a good question though. It's it's a good question and it's it's a very complicated question. Um not one single person owns the internet. Um and in terms of ownership I I I, I could say we could also say who controls the internet would be a broader even more inclusive um question. There are multiple layers of corporations that operate various parts of the networks around the world. It's not one internet. Mm-hmm. Um, there are multiple stakeholders, governments, corporations, users, um, content creator, and not one single unit controls um, everything. But one reason why the internet works and historically has worked is because it's open. Because we decided that for the internet to work, all the parts had to be connected and not one single player could discriminate against others. And that is what is being contested. So you have a fundamental organizational principle of the internet, uh, that openness and that neutrality that is being contested by uh, those very large uh, American corporations. And one point that I want to make too is that um, in places like Europe, net neutrality is enshrined into law um, and that does not seem to be an issue. Um, if, if you look at the cable uh, lobbyists here, it tells you that the um, their website, they said that the um, net neutrality increases consumer harm, uh, but that's not true. In Europe, uh, the internet is faster, cheaper, of better quality, with better penetration, and is neutral uh, thanks to regulation, and the consumer seems to be doing just fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if we could just add to that a little bit, I, that was a question I did want to get into is, is you know, this is a, the U.S. FCC that's trying to do this. So how does the U.S. compare to uh, not just Europe but elsewhere internationally? Right, well, I, I, yeah. can, I can tell you that um, Canada just looked at this issue again, and they sided uh, with net neutrality. And so I think that the United States, if the FCC is to um, repeal the open Internet order, then I think we're going to be uh, more of an outlier. Now, of course, you've got other issues that go on where you have, um, you know, places like China and areas where the government really wants to control the flow of information, particularly because they don't want people, you know, dissidents to be able to organize against the government. And so you get you get um, the governments themselves that are trying to limit what people can see and how they can communicate. And so those countries are are different as well. So can one of you uh, just explain quickly what the FCC, if if um, Mr. Pai, can he overturn this order or does he need congressional approval? How's this, how's this work? No, he, he doesn't need congressional approval, although it wouldn't hurt. But um, it was an FCC decision, so it's up to the FCC to uh, potentially uh, go back and rethink 
that decision, which apparently is is what he's aiming at right now. There are uh, restrictions on on the FCC, but um, they usually come after the fact on on regulations. So uh, if someone challenges the FCC's decision to roll back net neutrality, which I suspect somebody will uh, through a court action, there will be two questions that the courts will ask. And one is, uh, has the FCC uh, abided by the Administrative Procedure Act, which essentially sets out the guidelines for how regulations are supposed to be uh, approved. And secondly, they, the court always tries to avoid constitutional issues if it can, but the second thing they would look at um, would be, uh, has this decision violated the First Amendment rights of whoever may be suing, which will probably be a public interest consumer group uh, that would be challenging. So this this won't be, whatever the FCC decides, probably will not be the end of the story. Mm-hmm. So then right now is the FCC, they're the group charged with enforcing the existing regulations? Mm-hmm. So I know the FCC, just like with on-air complaints or anything, they have a huge backlog. So how realistic is it that the FCC is actually enforcing these regulations now? Sometimes it's enough that the regulation exists um, because the threat is, is there, of course, that, that they will actually do it. And uh, they have different units within the FCC that, that deal with different issues. So you are correct that right now they have a huge backlog on uh, indecency complaints, for example, regarding broadcasting, although that was – I don't, won't bore you with the details, but that was a product of their own um, uh, incompetence, I think, <laughs> to be honest. But, um, but I think uh, with this, uh, again, right now, there's probably not a whole lot of uh, – push from the chair, the committee, the uh, FCC's members to the staff to go out there and doggedly pursue net neutrality issues. So sometimes there is a, you, you, you can oftentimes see with any administrative agency, including the FCC, you oftentimes will see a, um, a waning and waxing of what they pay attention to and what they care about. And right now I suspect there's probably a wane on the net neutrality issue. So when when we're talking about this debate, the the regulations that exist are overturning them. Is what Pi is talking about is just completely eliminating the existing law, and then there would be it'd just be go go do whatever you want then at that point for these big companies. Pretty much. Again, I think um, Mr. Pi um, is not being very pragmatic and instead is being very ideological. Uh, and I think he has a very strong ideological bent where he firmly believes that um, regulations are bad in general. And so he wants to repeal that regulation under the guise of increasing freedom. Um, but that regulation, again, is just an anti-discrimination act telling um the cable companies, they can't discriminate. Uh, but yes, if, if the rule is repealed, uh, then that will open the door for Verizon, AT&T, Comcast, and these guys um, to, as the Verizon lo- uh, lawyer stated, exploring types of arrangement where they can block whatever they want. Um, this noon edition is a previous episode, so we can't take calls today. But we'll be back in January with new episodes. Uh, Anthony Fargo, you just raised a question that I that really piqued my uh, got my attention really quickly when you suggested that this could be a First Amendment issue if it gets to the courts. I can see that as a I hadn't thought about it in those terms before, but I I see that as very problematic for uh, certainly traditional media. If that were to happen, mm. well, and that's uh, that's why I think uh, we we should probably watch what the FCC does very closely because if there is a challenge to what to the FCC rolling back net neutrality, given the way that the Supreme Court has viewed the First Amendment, I think their their inclination will be to side with the internet service providers and with the FCC because. What they tend to say on the court is that it's not censorship, it's not restricting uh, commentary unless the government is doing it. So if you're saying essentially, if the FCC in, in, in essence says, uh, internet service providers, you're free now. You know, you're free from all these harmful regulations. Do whatever you want. I think the court will say, well, that's what the First Amendment means is that they get to do that. When the uh, court said that... Um, Excuse me. When the court said that um, the 
internet was the freest medium ever and that it provided a lot of uh, ability for people to, to, uh, to get their messages out. What that actually meant was there was a lot of freedom for the people who control access to the, to the internet. Uh, as well as people who use it to to do what they want. When uh, they said that basically uh, the Internet is at least as free as the print media, uh, we all know that what they mean by the print media being free is that publishers Mm -hmm. and editors uh, get to decide what goes into the newspaper, not the government. Mm -hmm. Uh, To a large extent, I I think that's what they're arguing here, is the people who control the access get to call the shots. And I think that's where the court would probably fall. Um, to double up on this, um, it's important because actually the um, the cable companies have claimed that they have a First Amendment right um, to decide uh, what you hear, and that um, the rule forcing them uh, not to discriminate would violate that First Amendment right. Um, that argument is incorrect simply because the cable company is not a speaker. The cable company is a tube, if you will, right? So the New York Times is a speaker. It creates the content. Comcast um, just operates a tube, and as such, it does not have First Amendment right. And so um, if I don't want to get too technical, but the open internet order, what it did is that it classified, it put those cable companies in a legal category called common carriers. And a common carrier is like the post office. And what that category does is that it tells the common carrier, you cannot discriminate against content. And so just like the post office cannot refuse to carry, let's say, Playboy magazine, um, Comcast cannot refuse to carry Netflix. And Comcast, just like the post office, does not have a First Amendment right because they're not a speaker. They're just a carrier. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So me- traditional media like the New York Times or like the Herald Times would, be, would not be a common carrier. Correct. Right. So I, you, you interested me because I have a lot of people who will call the editor of the newspaper and say – you're you're violating my First Amendment rights because you won't let me say this in the newspaper. And, right. and, you and know, you're not. My, my, yeah, my common response is you can go out on your front porch and say whatever you want. You just can't say it through our media. Yeah, so, Bob, I think yeah. another important um, point for people to understand is when this whole controversy kind of started in 2002 when the Bush FCC said that these Internet service providers are no longer – telecommunication services or information services, and that meant they were now free to discriminate just as if they were the New York Times and the editors of the Internet. Uh, people said, well, wait a minute, you've opened up this bad possibility of stuff getting blocked or so then or whatever. And so the Bush FCC said, okay, we'll have some principles that people should follow that we'll put here. And one of the principles is people should have access to whatever information they want to see. Well, as soon as they tried to enforce that, they got challenged in court, and they said, well, where do you have the authority? We're an information service. You don't have any power from Congress to boss us around on this. The FCC tried to say, well, we have what's called ancillary jurisdiction, where Congress said if you have to do things kind of related to the other things they ask you to do, you can do that. The court said, no, you lose FCC. You don't have the power. So then they, they came back and they said, okay, let's have some guidelines, and let's say that we get the power to do that under this thing called Section 706, where Congress said, make sure everybody's got the Internet. And the court said, nope, not good enough. And so what the Obama FCC and Chairman Wheeler ultimately decided is the best way to be on the best legal footing based on the law as Congress has written it now is to change them back from information service to telecommunication service. And that then makes them a common carrier, which then allows the FCC to say you cannot unreasonably discriminate amongst different types of data. And I think that what really has kind of freaked out the telecommunications carriers is there's a whole host of other regulations that the FCC wanted to that they could impose upon these common carriers. But, of course, they've chosen not to, but that's part of the battle. So if this is approved, is this kind of one of those things that I I might not notice as a consumer? Is it going to be so small and kind of techie and <laughs> that I'm that I might not even notice that it that it happened or that it passed? Oh, you will notice if the regulation is repealed, you will notice because the uh, cable companies will start blocking services that they don't like. Or you're by the way, we're talking about cable companies, but the same applies to uh, cell phone companies through which you get your mobile internet. All right, again, um, several years ago, AT&T blocked Skype. Yeah. So you would have noticed it as a consumer, right, if you use Skype. By, and not so many people use Skype by then. But if tomorrow AT&T blocks Skype, 
I'm pretty sure you'll see it. Um, if tomorrow Comcast um, slows down Netflix to a point that Netflix is unwatchable and you have to watch Hulu instead, which is a competitor of Netflix, which Comcast owns, you'll notice. But then the, the consumer could go to um, AT&T, right, potentially? Well, except that, again, you don't have a market that is competitive. Mm -hmm. Because of the nature of this market, it is so expensive to roll out that infrastructure that necessarily you will have a monopoly, just like AT&T had a monopoly over the phone mm -hmm. industry. Mm -hmm. Matt? Because the other trend that's going on here, too, if you think about it, is the Internet's becoming a commodity, right? And so if you're right. a big corporation and every quarter you have to show your shareholders an increase in revenues, you have to look around and say, where am I going to do that? So if you just think about um, the cell phone world, right? So we used to pay per text. Now it's pretty much unlimited. We used to worry about what min how many minutes we had in our package. That's now unlimited. And now the big fight's over data, which is basically broadband over um, wireless. And we're now getting people beginning to offer unlimited plans or things that are pretty close to unlimited. And so if the, that trend continues, these companies are going to find themselves where the only thing they can compete in is on price, because everyone will see it as a commodity. It's like buying peas at the grocery store. Peas are peas. What's the cheapest ones? And so the way that they have to get a new revenue stream is they have to be able to kind of get into the content area, which they're starting to do. Even Verizon's offering a content service now over wireless called, um, I think, Go or something like that, or Go90. And so the kind of the dynamics of the market are pushing these companies to constantly look for ways to increase revenues to keep the shareholders happy. And they would like to get this rule out of here so they can explore those other business models. Okay. I have to cut us off here. We're out of time. It's been a great conversation. I really appreciate all three of you being here, Julian Mayland, uh, Matt Pierce, and Anthony Fargo for Sarah Whitmire and Randy Batista, Mike Pashkash. I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from School of Public Health Bloomington. Public Health Reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life. publichealth.indiana.edu and Smithville Fiber, the Gigacity Company. Fiber Internet, HD, and digital IPTV in Southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. As we head into the new year, we're taking a look back at the stories that made headlines in Indiana, across the state, and in your community. From the opioid crisis, to the debate over cold beer, to in-depth investigations and series, to the stories we still just can't stop talking about. Join my co-host Bob Zaltzberg and me again here next Friday for Noon Edition when we do our annual Year in Review show.